Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Welcome to another edition of the Fundamental Health Podcast. If you are watching this on YouTube, you're seeing that I am doing video intros now, so I thought I'd make it a little more interesting. Got a pretty awesome backdrop here in Costa Rica, and I am super stoked to be here living the life, being in nature, living my own version of the remembering, eating meat and organs, surfing, being in the sun, skating. It's a good life. I want to tell you about Heart and Soil, you guys. This is my company. We make grass-fed, grass-finished, desiccated organ supplements. So we take all of the good nutrition in organs, liver, heart, spleen, kidney, pancreas, bone matrix, and our newest supplement, skin, hair, and nails, which has a special type of trachea and scapula collagen, which has been studied by John Pruden and shown to stimulate the immune system and wound healing mixed with bone marrow and liver. It's a powerful skin supporting supplement. You can find all of this at heartandsoil.co. All of our supplements are freeze-dried to preserve the nutrients. They are grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised in New Zealand. And I believe that getting organs back into our diets is a key way that we can all reclaim our ancestral birthrights to radical health, because that is what I believe you have the right to. It's freaking radical health. And there are so many unique nutrients in these organs that are left out of our diets. And this is how we are doing our part to help you get these back in your life. So check us out, heartandsoil.co.co reclaim your ancestral birthright to radical health, you guys. Check it out. On the podcast this week, I had a fun debate. It was a friendly debate, but at times it got heated, as all debates do, as all debates probably should, with Joel Furman. He's a medical doctor. He's pretty widely known as a supporter of a plant-based diet. And so I had him on the podcast to do a little back and forth. Been enjoying thinking about these vegan debates. I'll probably do more of them in the future. And as you will hear in this video, we disagreed on a lot of things. I hope this is uh, helpful for you guys. You can watch the audio version or listen to the audio version wherever you want. You can watch the visual version on YouTube if you want to see the studies that I'm pulling up. And as you'll hear in the middle of the podcast, even though Joel swore up and down, there were studies of animal foods showing that they worsen outcomes or had inflammatory properties, he could not produce a single one during the podcast, and nor did he send me a single study, a single interventional study showing that animal foods were harmful in humans. So I continue to wait for these, but I've never seen them. They don't exist, as far as I can tell. And I don't know what he was referring to. We got into this kind of back and forth about a hierarchy of evidence. He really believes that the majority of the evidence should be epidemiology. And I believe that a mountain of garbage is still garbage, like a landfill, and we can't rely on epidemiology, which is consistently confounded by health user bias and unhealthy user bias. So anyway, thank you so much to Joel for coming on. I think we need to do a part two. I think there's more to this conversation to be had, and I hope that you will enjoy this friendly debate, carnivore, animal-based versus plant-based. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how we reach more people. I firmly believe that the message of animal-based nutrition, the stuff we do at Hardened Soil, the stuff I do through this podcast is going to change millions, hundreds of millions 
of lives. This is why I do the work I do. And in order to reach more people, that review system, that set of reviews at Apple Podcasts is critical. So if you like this podcast, please leave me a review at Apple Podcasts. Would so appreciate that. Every month I give away a free copy of the book, signed copy of my book, The Carnivore Code, to someone who's left me a review as a thank you. So also want to give shout outs to my sponsors. Gotta give shout outs to White Oak Pastures. I love the folks here, whiteoakpastures.com. You've probably heard me talk about them a bunch. They have this farm in Georgia, sixth generation regenerative farm, 150 years in the family. They're doing carbon sequestering agriculture. They're raising cows, sheep, goats, ducks, turkey, guinea, chickens, the right way, putting more carbon back into the earth. Ecosystems management. If you go to Bluffton, Georgia, you'll see it. There's cows walking on the most beautiful green field you've ever seen. They move them from pasture to pasture. There's composting of the fields. They're not eating the grass all the way to the end. They're eating the grass a little bit and then they move them. There's birds flying around. They've recreated ecosystems. This is how animals used to live on this planet. This is what created the fertile land of the Western US, natural regenerative agriculture. This is the type of agriculture practice at White Oak Pastures. And they make some of the most delicious meat I've ever had of all sorts. They've also got chicken, which is soy and corn free. I love that they did this for us. I asked them to do soy and corn free chicken. They did it. So you can find soy and corn free chicken. You can find grass finished meat. You can find grass fed, grass finished meat. You can find beef, lamb, turkey, duck, guinea, chicken, pigs, all kinds of good stuff. Whiteoakpastures.com, CarnivoreMD gets you 10% off your first order. You will not regret this, you guys. Also wanna give a shout out to another amazing regenerative farm, Belcampo, belcampo.com. These folks are in Northern California. So I love supporting White Oak Pastures in Georgia, Belcampo in Northern California, in the shadow of Mount Shasta doing organic, grass-fed, grass-finished, regenerative agriculture, making amazing meat. The Bavette steaks are my favorite. They also do suet, liver, heart. They do all kinds of great cuts of meat, all kinds of roasts. Check them out, belcampo.com. You can use the code carnivore MD for 20% off your order. And if you are not a part of the tribe at Heart and Soil, if you're not on this newsletter list that I have, go to heartandsoil.co, get signed up for that because a few weeks ago, Belcampo did a 25% off promotion, but just for the weekend, and you had to be subscribed to the newsletter to get it. And we'll offer stuff like that all the time from sponsors of the podcast. So if you wanna hear about what I'm doing, you wanna hear stories, you wanna hear see science and you wanna get exclusive offers, Go to heartandsoil.co, check out the desiccated organs we make there, especially skin, hair, and nails, our newest one, and sign up for my tribe. You'll get a couple of emails throughout the week. We don't spam you, but you'll hear about these special offers from places like Belcampo. Use Carnivore MD for 20% off your order. You will love it. It's amazing. Also want to give a shout out to Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. These are purveyors of the finest blue blocking glasses I've ever used. In addition, they make nice light bulbs. that are red light bulbs. I need to get some sent to me here in Costa Rica. They have a sleep mask. They have a red light device called the Hive. They are incredible. Check them out, blueblocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Traveling has really taught me the importance of blue light protection. I cannot emphasize this enough. When the sun goes down here in Costa Rica, my lights go off and my blue blockers go on. As much as I can, I try and avoid these lights. And in the morning, I'm getting up super early to go surfing, getting that morning sunlight, getting the afternoon sunlight, it's so important to get the proper light that we're exposed to, get exposed to the proper light and protecting your eyes, protecting your suprachiasmatic nucleus, your retina, 
from Blue Light at Night is crucial. So check out blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Carnivore MD will get you 15% off your order there and your circadian rhythm, your hypothalamus, your superchiasmatic nucleus will thank you for it. And last but never least, thank you to letsgetchecked.com. They are at trylgc.com front slash Paul. This is the company helping you guys get your blood work done at home conveniently. So a statistic for you. Healthy sperm counts in men have dropped 50% in the last 40 years. 50% in the last 40 years. Hormonal imbalances, reduced T, they're commonplace and it's scary. One in four men over 30 is low in testosterone, has a hormonal imbalance. Symptoms, you don't even wanna know about them. They're horrible. Low energy, fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, horrible. It's often misdiagnosed. So one of the nice things is that guys and women who have hormonal stuff can get checked at home with Let's Get Checked. It's a company with a mission to make professional health testing easily accessible. They have fast, affordable, confidential at-home male hormone test kits to help listeners of the Fundamental Health Podcast take a measured approach to their health and check their hormones. So Let's Get Checked is offering customers 20% off by using my URL, trylgc.com front slash Paul. That's trylgc, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com front slash Paul. Here's how it works. Super easy. Choose your test online, delivered to you in discreet packaging, next day, next day. Collect your sample, activate it, put it in the prepaid shipping envelope. You get your results in two to five days. You'll get results on five hormonal levels, testosterone, SHBG, prolactin, estrogen, free androgen index. Once your results are available, they're reviewed by a physician and a nurse contacts you for a consultation over the phone and you go from there. I did a bunch of tests with them. It was great. I did my male hormones. I did CRP. They also have blood lipids. You can do um, also, I believe, fatty acid profile in your blood. Check them out online. Trylgc.com from slash Paul. They're CLIA approved. It's the highest ranking level of accreditation. All data is anonymized and you get 20% off at trylgc.com from slash Paul. So you can get your tests done at home. So thank you to Let's Get Checked and my other sponsors for sponsoring this podcast. On to the friendly debate with Joel Furman. All right, Dr. Joel Furman, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sure, my pleasure. Always have fun talking about this kind of stuff. All right, so uh, an animal-based doctor and a plant-based doctor walk into a bar, and this is what's going to happen in this podcast right now, is we're going to have a little conversation. And I just want the listener to know that um, we'll probably have to do two parts or something because you let me know that you're at Mammoth right now. And I appreciate the fact that you are itching to get out there and ski some powder because I would be exactly the same, my friend. So um, again, thanks for coming on. So you know what? I thought when I did a podcast with Rich Roll, who's another prominent plant-based advocate on The Minimalists, I wished during that podcast that he and I had had some ability to do something as humans prior. We were thinking about going to do a sauna or something. It didn't work out. But if I were there in Mammoth, we would do some runs together. And I, I think that would be really cool because despite the fact that we may disagree on some things, we're all human. And I think that that's important to remember. And that I believe that you and I are having the same intentions with our work. And so I just want you to know that, that, that I think that we are moving toward the same things. And I wish I could do some powder turns with you. 
Um, but I wanted to let you tell your story first because, you know, I think it's curious and I don't know your story very well, but I'm, I'm curious your, your medical journey, your personal story and how that led you to where you are ideologically now. And then we'll get into some of the finer points. Sure. Um, well, I'm 67 years old. Um, um, I was on the United States world figure skating team in the 1970s. I was third in the world in, in, pair, in pairs figure skating in 1976. I spent my childhood as a serious competitive athlete, training all day long. I, gr I went to, I graduated from college. Um, I didn't go to medical, I didn't decide to become a physician until after I had finished college in my medical career. I was so interested in nutrition that I pursued an, a medical degree specifically to be a doctor specializing in the reversal of disease and nutritional methods. So I graduated from, so I went to medical school at about age 30 um, to, to pursue this um, interest of mine. And I had, um, and so I graduated from University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in 1988. And I've been practicing as a specialist in nutritional therapies um, for now more than three decades. Um, and that, and I, um, so I've written about 12 books. Seven of them have been New York Times bestsellers. I've had five different PBS television shows um, teaching nutrition and longevity to, the, to across America. These are fundraising pledge shows that raise money for PBS. Um, so I don't pay for the show and I don't make any money from the show, but I, the money, and I've raised over $70 million for public television. So my PBS television shows were some of the most, um, most um, raised more money for PBS um, over a period of time, we raised a lot of money for PBS television. So I've been very um, grateful for the career I've had, and I've touched, obviously, uh, many thousands of people and had them reverse their heart disease, get rid of their diabetes, reverse autoimmune disease like lupus and psoriasis and scleroderma and rheumatoid arthritis and ulcerative colitis. So I spent a lot of time working with seriously ill patients. And I also have now a retreat in San Diego, and I've lived my whole life on the East Coast. And in the last year, I've moved to the West Coast. I was traveling back and forth from the East Coast to my retreat in San Diego, but now I live permanently in San Diego. And people fly in or drive in from parts of the country, and they stay with me for two to three months, a minimum of 30 days, mostly people who are overweight with food addiction, but they have other comorbidities, and they're able to reverse their heart disease, get off their blood pressure medications, and avoid bypass surgery and angioplasty. And so I encourage, so I don't have people come in like a health retreat or a, or a health spa where they stay a few days or a week. They're people that really are staying, I only have limited number of rooms. So I only accommodate people who are staying there a long time so they can drop 50 pounds and go home with the skills and emotional um, and intellectual knowledge to take care of their, their health and continue the progress they made and not have recidivism. Um, the standard American diet is full of them. Um, you know, addictive junk food and all types of dangerous ways of eating. So I really might, um, have better effects when people have a big exposure to this body of knowledge. So I, I really love what I do. I'm very passionate about what I do. And I've, I've always stayed physically fit in my whole life. As I said, I was a competitive athlete. And I'm, and I'm now that I'm like not seeing patients and writing books anymore, I've decided I finished my last book last year. My latest best, my last best-selling book was um, Eat for Life. One of my earliest ones was Eat to Live. So this, um, so this, my last, so I'm not writing more books, so I'm not working as hard anymore, and I'm not seeing patients any, all day in the office anymore. I stopped that in the last few years, too. So right now I'm working maybe half time, 
and I have more time to devote to things I really enjoy now. That I'm at. So I'm still working, but I have more time to ski and surf and to bike and to jog and to play volleyball and to run on the beach and to lift weights. So now I'm actually, you know, I've, I've always been pretty physically fit, but I'm actually even more physically fit now at 67 than I was maybe at 60. So I can, I can ski with my legs getting less sore. I'm able to have more time for climbing mountains and, you know, so I, I'm just, um, so I've always been fit, but I'm even, but I have more time to, to do the things I enjoy today. That's amazing. And I think that we're very similar. I went to medical school later in my life. Um, I went to medical school when I was 34. I worked as a physician assistant in cardiology for a number of years before that. And I went back to medical school later in life, but I think that we share the same, the same purpose and the same intention. And it's so interesting that both animal-based diets and plant-based diets can lead to reversal of chronic disease that Western medicine calls untreatable and that mainstream Western medicine wants to treat with pharmaceuticals and really wants to um, just not, well, fails to open its mind toward nutrition. So I think that we agree on, on that in the beginning, that, that so many of these chronic diseases, autoimmune diseases, psoriasis, Sjogren's autoimmune thyroiditis, eczema, like I've had so many of these things, even atherosclerosis, you know, it's interesting. And I think we'll probably get into this in this podcast that both animal-based diets and plant-based diets can reverse that. And so that's, that's a fascinating, I think, truism that we, well, I, maybe you would disagree with that, but that I've observed and that I think is in, interested in, I'm interested in drilling down on rather than getting, you know, uh, sort of bogged down in, in the uh, dogmatic wars over either side. But Let's just start with this. I thought that as we look at our um, differing viewpoints, I thought I would ask you, you know, what are your concerns with meat? And maybe we could go from there and then I might, and then I might share some of my concerns with some plants and we can sort of highlight both sides of the equation. So I guess perhaps the beginning question is what do you think causes chronic disease in humans? And if, if meat and animal products are included in that, then what are your concerns with meat? Yeah. Um, you know, I have to be frank. I hope it's okay. You don't take this. Um, um, I don't want in any way to, you know, um, you know, make you make you or your followers feel attacked or any way, but I don't really believe there's a controversy here. And I don't really think there are two sides. I think the evidence is overwhelming and non-controversial because I think that there's a lot of different ways you can change a diet to help a person in the short term. And any, you know, sometimes you just lose weight and people get better from, you know, we're looking at, um, you know, studies that go on for six months or two years. There's lots of ways people can lose weight, get rid of diabetes, and eat all meat, and it'll work. But those studies generate a hypothesis that would have to be confirmed with long-term studies. And for a study to have a high credence value, um, or to, to say something more definitively, to give people advice that's going to um, they can hold dear to their heart, and they know is true, we have to have some long-term studies that corroborate short-term studies. And investigate all the data to see where the overwhelming amount of evidence lies. And I could say with clarity that when we look at studies with, with high credence value, which means three things. One, when we're talking about diseases and causes of death, we have to study large numbers of people. So we have to have many thousands of people in the study, not 50 or 100, but 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 people. Number two, the study has to go on for decades, not years. And number three, we have to look at hard endpoints, which means mortality, cardiovascular mortality or cancer mortality or all-cause mortality and age of death. And I can sit here today and I can 
tell you that all the studies, every one that looks at over long-term overall mortality, cardiovascular mortality with large numbers of people, show that as you increase the plant, the animal protein in the diet, we get increase of cardiovascular death and cancer death. And as you increase plant proteins or substitute reducing animal protein or animal fat and increase more whole plant protein or plant fats, we see increased lifespan and lower cardiovascular and cancer mortality. And for example, there was a recent study published in the Lancet Public Health 2018 that followed, let me give you the number of people that followed, 40,181 deaths. Uh, yeah, for over 40,000 deaths. And they followed people on average more than 25 years. And it very conclusively showed that diets higher in animal protein laid for earlier life deaths in both cardiovascular and cancer mortality. I'm just saying that's one study, but we have all the other studies. And there's, here's, here's a study with 18 pool data from 17 different studies showing increased animal protein, increasing risk of breast cancer deaths, colon cancer deaths. Here's a study published by the World Cancer Research Fund, looking at over a thousand studies showing increased meat, increased to um, increased bowel cancer deaths. So we're we're talking, and, th and these studies, by the way, are in pasteurase. This was a multi-country study because I know that some people want to make excuses and say, "Oh, there, that's commercial raised meat. It's not pasteurized. It's not natural animal products." And those um, arguments aren't true. So to be honest, you you know. You're a nice guy, but I think you're very misguided and you and it's like a religion where people aren't weighing science and logic and overwhelming amount of evidence. They just pick the side they want to choose to be on. And then they try to accumulate data to support that way of living and eating instead of having an open slate, having no preference at all, and just saying, where does the data lie? And where are the blue zones, the longest of people, and what's the foods that are linked to protection against cancer? So if I can reverse a person's heart disease, get them off their blood pressure medication, or get rid of their psoriasis with a diet that's going to enable them to live to be 100 years old, I'd rather do that compared to some way, because using a, a diet style that you're recommending is like using a, um, a chemotherapeutic agent by a rheumatologist, because they may feel better and, you know, just from certain things they're doing, but it's, but long-term, it's not going to be great for their health. So you're selling the people out with, with, um, with inadequate and, and misguided information. Is that why you've publicly said that I should be in jail, Joel? Uh, that was maybe a joke or a, but I, I think that, I do think that people who give information around people's health and longevity with such a, with what's going to increase the risk of dementia and cancer, I think that they, it should be, um, there should be a warning that says even some kind of warning, like on cigarette smoking, that says, even though this may have some short-term benefits, long, there are proven long-term dangers. And this person's guidance should be taken with that in mind. So I think that really, um, I do think that it's important to speak out against people will be advocating a diet so high in meat because um, it's dangerous long-term from so many different ways. So yeah, I do think that, you know, maybe you'll change your mind eventually when if you allow data, left data, if you, I could send you so many different studies that document this, you, and there's no way you could disavow the, the data in all these studies. It, it has to be that you're not aware of them, you know, or, and because they're, and the question is, 
um, you know, we, like I asked the question is, are, like a psychiatrist who just gives a person an antipsychotic um, drug to get, make them feel better, are there any warnings about the potential long-term risks of, that, of those interventions? Follow me? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'd like to respond to some of your points. Um, what you are describing is, I think, the, the main issue that I have with plant-based ideology and where I believe it's flawed. You are describing primarily epidemiology. You are describing observational studies. This study you're describing in The Lancet is observational epidemiology. You are not describing interventional studies. And I will pause before I go on and offer you the opportunity to, to show me one single interventional study with non-processed red meat that shows harm because it does not exist that I'm aware of. But if you are aware of that study, I will let you show it to me now. Conversely, I will show you now multiple studies that show that increasing amounts of red meat in the human diet lead to improved outcomes in inflammatory markers and many other markers in human health, including diabetes, et cetera. So we are talking about interventional versus observational epidemiology studies. And herein lies the main problem with your line of thinking, I will respectfully submit, that you are suggesting we look at the entirety of data or the majority of the data. These are words that I heard you sort of using. But here's the problem. A landfill, a landfill is a mountain of garbage, but that doesn't change the quality of the contents of the landfill. If you are trying to stack epidemiology, observational epidemiology on top of observational epidemiology, that doesn't change the quality of the study. Or as you say, the credibility of the study, the credence that we give to observational epidemiology is massively shaky at best because of two things, uh, healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias. These are things that I have talked about multiple times. And in case the listener is not familiar with healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias, I'll explain. Healthy user bias is this type of bias, a type of confounding found in epidemiology that cannot be controlled for, according to preeminent statisticians, suggesting that those people who eat more fruits and vegetables in Western cultures do so in addition to other healthy behaviors. Because what has been the mainstream sort of, what has been the mainstream focus? What has been the mainstream paradigm for the last 70 years? It has been that Red meat is bad for you, since the unfortunate work of Ansel Keys, which again was observational epidemiology, which was cherry-picked, and it has been that fruit and vegetables are good for you. So who eats more fruit and vegetables? People that, like you, are often, often engaging in other activities that are healthy for them, being on the beach, surfing and skiing. And who eats more red meat? This is where the unhealthy user bias comes in. People that eat more red meat are people who disregard health advice in general. And so the problem with these epidemiology studies, this study in the Lancet you've studied, that you've cited, and really, unfortunately, hundreds of observational epidemiology studies that continue to make the same problem, the same mistake over and over and over, and yet do not report this accurately or with clarity to mainstream audiences who may not be as educated in the nuances of, of studies and medical research, they continue to conflate causation with correlation. Causative inference cannot be drawn from these studies in any way, shape, or form. We can correlate, as you suggest, 
the increased consumption of red meat with worse health outcomes. This is true in Western countries, but not in Eastern countries. And I will show you Asian countries, multiple studies done in Japan and Asia that show a completely different correlation. Furthermore, we have to look at these studies and ask, is it really the red meat that is causing these problems in humans? Or is it something else these people are doing or not doing? And I think it is much more likely that it is the latter case because of unhealthy user bias. These are the James Dean types. And so when I look at epidemiology, I say, this is garbage. There's an acronym in computer programming, garbage in, garbage out. We cannot base medical decisions on garbage science. But the good news is that we actually do have interventional studies with red meat, studies where people replace large amounts of carbohydrates in their diet, presumably from grains, with eight ounces of red meat per day. And they see lower CRP and improved markers of insulin sensitivity. So in this case, I will challenge you again. Can you show me a single interventional actual experiment in which increased amounts of animal products were included in the human diet that showed a negative outcome? Yeah. Um you know, I, I, I listen to what you're saying and I feel that you're um, Well, really I'm challenged. asking, I asked you a question. Can you, can you show me a single study like that, Joel? I, I have to say that there are probably as equal amount of studies, but there are a large numbers of interventional studies. All the studies on cardiovascular reversal with Dean Ornish, Dr. Esselstein, well, my are, studies on reversing diabetes, all these studies showing that, um, that inter interventionally, Diabetes goes away, heart disease melts away. There's no study on animal product increasing and heart disease melting away. That's oh, a yes, claim you make. Oh, yes, yeah, there are. There's nothing that shows before and after pictures with CAT scans and PET scans. We'll talk about you know. that. But I'm asking yeah. you, please don't no, dodge I mean, my question, Joel. I asked you first. I'm what not you're describing, question, but I have well, to Well, what you're describing are vegan studies. You're describing studies with plant-based diets, which we can address the flaws in Ornish's study. So Ornish's atherosclerosis and geographic study is significantly flawed, and we can talk about that. But what I asked you, are you aware of a single interventional trial in humans in which increased amounts of red meat cause harm? Because I am not. Oh, yes. There's, there's quite a few studies showing, even short-term studies, that red meat consumption raises cholesterol, raises CRP, and raises- Can you show me one? Endpoint. Can you show me one? Yes, I'll, I'll send you a... I can no, send you, don't, you, a, you don't have it available right now? I, I don't have it right Author, now. Author, year, anything. I've never seen a study like that. And in this podcast, if we have time, we will get into the cholesterol myth and the fact that you. I do not think you can use total cholesterol LDL as a metric. Earlier in this conversation, you suggested well, that we, we have hard endpoints. And right, total we cholesterol have hard LDL. Yeah, there are no hard endpoints with, with red meat. <laughs> like you, HSCRP would be a hard endpoint but I have never seen an interventional study with red no, meat. No, HSCRP is not a hard endpoint. That's a soft endpoint. Okay. That's better than total cholesterol and LDL, but I, there are no studies, and I, I think you are wrong on this. There is not a single no. interventional study with red meat, non-processed red meat in humans showing harm. And I'll show you. I'll just pause here, and I'll show a very clear study showing increased lean red meat does not elevate markers of oxidative stress and inflammation in humans. This is the study I mentioned earlier. So this is increasing 60 participants, eight week parallel study design. They 
are decreasing carbohydrates and increasing red meat by eight ounces per day. This is a significant amount of red meat by many perspectives. And they had lower amounts of F2 isoprostine in the excretion, lower HSCRP, and overall improved markers of insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity. So how can we possibly say that red meat is harmful for humans when studies like this exist and clearly demonstrate this? It's what irrelevant. Is the study you showed doesn't even matter. It's an eight-week crossover study. Well, wait, eight-week wait. crossover study. That could generate a hypothesis. Yes, that's the reason why we generate about then to have some integrity and definitiveness you have to take large numbers of people and go for long periods of time, and you have to see outcomes and look at hard endpoints. There are, none, there are none that show let bad me, outcomes with red meat. And me, uh, why, I, is, why is an eight-week study not valid? Why is an eight-week crossover study not valid? You what, I can give you a study. I could show you cholesterol-lowering drugs over a period of short term, lower cholesterol and improve CRP. But we don't know. Maybe the cholesterol-lowering drug increases risk of cancer. And maybe if you follow those people for 20 years, the overall mortality would be increased with a statin drug compared to not having the statin drugs. We don't know that until we do some long-term studies. With any data, when we look at short-term studies, they only generate a hypothesis. You, can, you never can give the definitive medical advice or long-term nutritional advice. So you based show on me, such a, such a, please show so me. So I'm you. saying, let me just say something because yeah. I, um, you spoke for a long time on the worthlessness of the thousands of long-term studies representing many thousands of top nutritional researchers in the world, including the World Health Organization, the International Association of Cancer Researchers, you're saying that all the top scientists in the world who use control data, control for variables, and you're just saying, well, every epidemiologic study that all show long-term consumption of animal pro protein is harmful, raises IGF-1, increases breast and colon cancer, increases cardiovascular death, and you're saying every study is wrong because they're not controlling for factors because those people who are eating more vegetables are doing other healthier things. That all these researchers are kind of stupid and you're a, lot, you're a lot smarter than them and you know that every data that they've put out, and we're talking about all the people, all the studies from the, Co the Cochrane analysis, the, the Lancet, the, you know, we're talking about, and I mentioned that one Lancet study, by the way, and... Um, I'm, what I'm saying right now, there are hundreds of other studies that corroborate that. We would never take one study and say, this one study makes everything you're saying wrong. I'm saying that every other study also corroborates and comes up with the same information and in all different countries. And in this particular study in the Lancet, they had 38 different countries they used data from. It wasn't one country's. They use data from Thailand and from Mozambique and from France and from all, all these different countries. And they use data for people using pasture-raised animal products, not, not commercial and not processed meats. Furthermore, the seven-day Adventist Health Study, too, turned nutritional science on, the, on, its, on its head. And that's because it has to have a lot of um, credence value for the seven-day Adventist studies because they study people that, whose religion advocates no smoking, no drinking, regular exercise, and these people are already like, how should we say, geared to, to um, advise to eat a diet that's highly plant-based. So you have a lot of people eating vegan diets, near-vegan diets, flexitarian, pescatarian, some higher amounts of animal products, some larger amounts, a broad spectrum of animal product consumption within the same basic lifestyle and religious factors. 
And there are not generally a lot of overweight people and a lot of smokers involved either. So when you, so they've, and they, and these researchers are not stupid. They control for all these different variables and they show conclusively that as the, as the people um, reduce animal protein and substitute more plant protein foods, you get longer lifespan. And as people eat more nuts and seeds in the diet, and especially reducing oils and, and um, oils and, um, and animal fats, and you get more fat from whole plant foods in the form of nuts and seeds, you have a 40% reduced risk of cardiovascular death. And that was corroborated in the, in the physician's health study from Harvard. And you're saying that every, all the data and all these thousands of researchers, and this study, by the way, was supported by the National Institute of Health. So all these researchers across the world, they're putting out all this data every year and all these studies, but they're all wrong. You're the one that's right. Everybody else is wrong. You're the one that's right. And you're the one, and they're, they're cherry picking. They're just, all the data is just a bunch of garbage. But the little six week study that you showed or eight week study that you showed, because when people ate more or less red meat or something in that diet over a six week period, that's the one we should believe. Well, there's and many more that, like that. I'll show you more. That? There's many more like that. There are many interventional studies with meat that show improved outcomes in the short term and the relative long term. The, the fact the, is it's, that it's the- It's not showing increased meat has improved outcomes. Well, it's it's, showing- Do you think insulin improvements? In, insulin yes, that's what I'm saying. Not an improvement it's showing the, when you take the glycemic load and you remove processed and high glycemic carbohydrates, you get short-term improvements. Even moderate now, glycemic snatch- index carbohydrates from these people. These are grains they're eating. They are so-called healthy grains. And Grain, so I must, I must push back here. That's as well. correct. I'm saying that grains are high glycemic carbohydrates, especially when they're ground into flour. They're comparatively high glycemic carbohydrates. Now, you and I both know that there's a strong association between white flour and other high glycemic processed carbohydrates with both cardiovascular death and cancer deaths. I'm not advocating people eat high glycemic carbohydrates, white rice, white potato, white flour products. We can design all kinds of diets that promote disease. And I'm saying a diet high in animal products is a disease promoting diet over the long term with no controversy. Like you said, you can't find one study. And I said, yes, I'll send you a whole bunch. You don't have a single one to show me right now. And I don't believe you because I've never found a single book on it. I've I've written books on this. So you you don't have this study to show me? You don't think this study would come up in our conversation? I have 2,000 references in my book. You're saying that in your book, there are interventional studies with red meat, non-processed red meat in humans showing harm because I have never seen that study, Joel. And I want to be very clear about this. Yes, I am absolutely doing what you are saying I'm doing. I am saying that the majority of researchers have their head up their ass. They are not seeing healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias. And this will continue to be at play in westernized countries in which the prevailing narrative for the last 70 years has been that red meat is bad for us. In fact, and, and we can- Not only, so many, not only bad for us, increasing risk of death a few percent, we're talking about 60% increased risk of death here. No, that's not true. You about- must be very careful with that statistic. That is a relative risk. That is not an absolute risk increase. You are mixing your statistics up here. That is crazy, Joel. Please let me finish. So here's what I would challenge you with. If we are going to compare epidemiology to epidemiology, I'll show you some garbage to to really to show up against your garbage, right? I don't think these studies are valuable. I admit that epidemiology is confounded, but you are making a statement that all of these researchers, as if there's a, a very clear 
leaning in these studies toward meat being bad for you, except what you are doing is you are ignoring, you are essentially cherry picking. This is the problem with epidemiology. I would say that interventional studies stand on their own. They cannot be cherry picked, but epidemiology must be considered in its entirety because it's observational. It's not a real study. And so if we are doing that, we must consider studies like these meat intake and cause specific mortality, a pooled analysis of Asian prospective cohort studies. This is over 300,000 people, Joel, in Bangladesh, China, Korea, Taiwan, and Japan. They were followed for 6.6 .6 to 15.6 years. They had all of these deaths and what do they find? A pooled analysis did not provide evidence of a higher risk of mortality for total meat intake and provided evidence of an inverse association with red meat, poultry, and fish and seafood. Red meat intake was inversely associated with CBD mortality in men and cancer mortality in women in Asian countries. That is just the first one. Allow me to show a few more. So studies like this really bring into question the infallibility of these researchers you are talking about. Again, we are in Asia now where the prevailing narrative is different. This is 223,000 men and women and they were followed for many years, right? They looked at the risk of mortality from cerebrovascular disease, which was, please let me finish, don't interrupt me, um, was inversely associated with dairy, milk, meat, and fish consumption. So this is epidemiology. I will admit, this is correlation. We cannot draw causative inference, but you are incorrect if you make the statement that every study shows increasing meat and uh, organ or even the fact that animal fat consumption is harmful in these studies. And if we go further, we can go to interventional studies looking at animals. And again, we're now in animals, so it's not a perfect model, but here's a study that shows us that beef fat improves apoptosis and decreases aberrant cryptophosi formation relative to a plant-based oil in the rat colon. And of course, apoptosis, aberrant cryptophosi are involved in colon cancer outcomes. And we can go down the colon cancer rabbit hole and very deeply if you want. Red meat has never been shown in an interventional study to worsen any of these metrics. And furthermore- These studies you're showing have no value because you're not comparing natural plant foods, you're comparing processed oils. Oils are a processed food that's highly carcinogenic as well. I ag we agree you know, on that, you know, but, what, well, but please- One more thing is that you're not, you're also, the, the Asian studies are not, you, in order to look at that, you have to differentiate different types of stroke. If I could just talk for one minute on that. Well, please let me we finish because I didn't, that, you, you inter I, I let you talk completely. And so if we're going to do this, we really need to let each other finish our thoughts. It's not fair to interrupt me like that. I, I let you finish your thought. And so the, the first study was looking at cardiovascular disease and cancer outcomes in women. The second study was looking at cerebrovascular disease, which is both hemorrhagic and ischemic strokes. And so both of those studies clearly show, clearly show that there, at least in terms of epidemiology, there is no problem here. And I didn't get the chance because we got sidetracked. There are so many interventional trials that even compare animal and plant protein diets on immune and inflammatory biomarkers. So this is not even just a meat intervention. This is an animal versus a plant intervention. It's a six week trial. It's interventional. And of course, it's not the longest trial ever. The NIH won't fund a five-year interventional trial. This is the best we have. And we cannot think that we're only going to rely on epidemiology for long-term 
uh, long-term data points. And I think that it's actually not fair to say that short-term trials are not valuable. We would see changes in these inflammatory markers in foods that are harmful for humans. And so you can see here that Kemarin uh, and progranulin concentrations decreased following both animal protein and plant protein diets. Well, that's interesting. TGF beta 1 increased in animal protein, decreased in plant protein. Calprotectin, which is a marker of GI inflammation, as you know, increased in plant protein and decreased in animal protein. That's interesting. No statistically significant differences in the concentrations of interleukin 6, TNF alpha, or other inflammatory markers were found between either of the diet protein arms. And so I just want to show. One more study after this, that's an interventional study looking at these outcomes in people with liver disease and show the exact same thing, that when we really look at this, there is no evidence that meat is harmful for humans. It's very clear, it's extremely clear <laughs> that, that meat is actually quite good for humans and improves so many of these outcomes. So here's the last study and then I'll let you respond. This is isocaloric diets, high in animal or plant protein, reduce liver fat and inflammation in individuals with type two diabetes. Joel, if what you're saying is true, and we can look at the abstract, you're welcome to look at the outcomes data here. If what you're saying is true, how is it possible <laughs> that, that you would have so many interventional studies in humans showing that in a prospective study with patients with type two diabetes, Diets high in either animal or plant protein reduce liver fat, independent of body weight. They reduce markers of insulin resistance. They reduce hepatic necroinflammation. How can you say that meat is harmful for humans? And of course, this study is also not damning plant protein. And we can talk about my concerns with plants, and we will at the second half of this podcast. So there's clear evidence here that interventional trials with increased amounts of animal foods have benefit. Are you saying that long-term, this benefit is going to take a sudden U-turn and these are going to be harmful for people, the short-term outcomes look great. And I continue to, uh, to stand by my conviction that there are no short-term or moderate-term studies that are interventional with red meat that show negative outcomes. And the epidemiology, as I showed, is also not entirely as you were presenting it, or it appeared that you were presenting it because you were saying all of these studies, the huge amount of evidence, we're ignoring everyone in Asia when you say that. And so all those Asian researchers would come to a very different conclusion with their observational research. No, that's, that's, I don't agree with what you just said either. But let me, let me just, I can't address everything. Why, why would you, okay, so please explain why you disagree with what I just said. Okay, there's a few reasons. Number one, there are, you have to look at what the replacement calories are in any study. So we're talking about, there are certain plant foods that are known to be harmful and disease causing, like white rice and, you know, and, and salt, for example. And we know that there are different types of strokes and different types. So in other words, when you're switching one food from another, it may be true that substituting meat and taking out white rice or even white potato or white bread, you might have some benefits because the glycemic effect of those plant foods may be even more pro-inflammatory or worse than meat. So you have to look at what replacement calories. If you're substituting meat for beans or meat for nuts, then you have a completely different outcome. You can show study that eggs are okay. They don't, they're not so bad on cardiovascular diabetes death if they're comparing them, removing carbohydrates like pasta and bread from the diet and substituting egg. But the minute they start to use eggs instead of beans or vegetables or some other whole plant food, you see that eggs do have a comparatively negative effect. In so epidemiology, I, yes, I can show you those studies. In observational epidemiology, not in, not in interventional studies. 
Yes, and interventional studies as well. And I can show I you. I can. do not believe you. Please, you must show me those studies. Those do not I, exist, Joel. I'll send you some of those studies and we can finish this. We can finish this conversation. Yes, up. we will. I can position some of those studies. But let me, and, and when you talk about total strokes, the reason why the studies that you showed were not, um, you know, you know they're, they're short-term studies and they're, we have to Short look at them. Short-term? That was epidemiology. That was over multiple years. Yeah, but okay, so we can look at each of those studies individually. The one on strokes, for example, you have to differentiate um, cerebral hemorrhage and hemorrhagic sure. stroke sure. from ischemic stroke because we know ischemic stroke alone is increased with animal product consumption, animal fat consumption, but hemorrhagic stroke That's has no true. correlation. That's not true. That's yes, you're, that, again, you're talking about epidemiology again, Joel. Okay, so I'm talking about epidemiology. Let me just say, let me finish my thought process, okay? In that the atherosclerotic process and the thickening of the blood vessel that occurs with diets higher in cholesterol and saturated fat offers some degree of protection against ischemic strokes because when you're on a very high salt diet, a lot of the Asian countries are consuming four to six grams of sodium a day, which they have a much higher risk of hemorrhagic stroke in those countries than we do in this country. In this country, our number one cause of stroke is, is ischemic stroke. In the Asian countries, we have a much higher risk of 10 times the risk of hemorrhagic stroke. So anything you do that decreases risk of hemorrhagic stroke in an Asian country is gonna show a benefit on all stroke mortality because most of those strokes are, you're impacting are hemorrhagic strokes. And I'm agreeing with you that as you reduce salt and reduce, um, as you increase the risk of cardiovascular death from ischemic or clot or cracking of a blood vessel, you know, an irregular heartbeat, sudden cardiac death, or a clot formation in the heart, a clot in the brain, you're gonna increase the risk. So there's no, not gonna show a decreased risk of, in um, ischemic or, or, um, or embolic strokes from increased meat consumption. You're only gonna show a decrease in hemorrhagic stroke. In Asia. Because, what's that? In Asia. In, in Asia because they have a high salt diet and they're in such an increased risk of cerebral vascular death. And the thickening of the blood vessels in the brain might from increased risk of atherosclerosis from diets higher in animal products. And, and also the lower glycemic effect of the diet may have some stabilizing effects on the protection from the high salt diet they eat there causing um, hemorrhagic strokes. So excluding, so the stroke study, you have to look at more um, definitive studies looking at just one stroke or another. It's a very controversial, and in, in the medical literature right now, there's a lot of um, um, controversy and discussion going on, on on studies that group together hemorrhagic stroke and ischemic stroke because they have completely different caus causative factors. And that's why the Asian study on that isn't really defining it much. But I'm, I am saying that if you took a diet that you reduced animal products and you reduced or you reduced or you reduced salt and white rice, in other words, I'm saying high glycemic carbohydrates and animal products do not contain fiber, do not contain antioxidants and phytochemicals, do not contain anti uh, they're not high in anti-cancer substances. They they over long term they promote inflammation, and you can sh and if you're modulating reduction in animal products and reduction in high glycemic processed foods and substituting more whole plant foods like nuts and seeds and beans, then we see the most dramatic reduction in all-cause mortality, cancer deaths. Epidemiology, and and, epidemiology. And cardiovascular. When you're looking at death, when you're looking at death and not just a number, you're always gonna have some study looking at people long-term when you're looking at cause of death. Those are hard endpoints. You wanna throw out every study to the person's death. 
Okay, you but when we look at death, we always here. see we say we stop people from dying when they do the right thing. You can just disavow, disavow every study, all the thousands of studies done, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 studies. You could say they're all just a bunch of garbage. Only the studies I like, these two or five that I like are the right ones, and those are all the wrong ones. But that would be like denying climate change because you'd have to get you couldn't find almost anybody in the world who would agree with your way of thinking that when to disavow every study and just pick these few that you like that trying to justify what you're doing. It's just it's it's a it's it's a degree of like it's just unquestionably um distorted way of thinking to disavow every study and every scientist in the world. They're all confused. You've got it right. Don't look at any of these studies that are long-term. They're all a bunch of garbage, except for the one or two I picked in Asia when they eat a diet of 6,000 milligrams of salt, you know, and they're eating a diet of mostly white rice, which is junk food anyway. So then that, that's the only thing that you can argue. And, I'm, and I am saying that in Asian countries, like look at the um, China study, for example, the China-Oxford Cornell study. You mean the China study, study that was severely confounded by cherry picking and that has been summarily well, that's, destroyed. That's your, argu that's your argument, but that's, that's not been true. done by Denise Minger very rap, very widely. T. Colin Campbell, T. Colin Campbell. Been, her argument has been torn apart too. T. So Colin Campbell's arguments were torn Dr. apart. Campbell's works where thousands of legitimate scientists say that these people that attack them with pro-animal product agendas are just distorting, are distorting the data as well. But if you, even if you say, okay, well, Let's assume that there's some mistakes in Dr. Campbell's massive studies and not just his, is obviously he has about a dozen other scientists from around the world from Harvard and, and um, Oxford associated with that. But all these people are wrong. Then what about all the other studies that corroborate that and show the same thing? And you're, well, but, and you could pick one from Asia because they're, like I said before, but there's, you can't disavow all the evidence. And, and you can't, well, meat doesn't cause harm in the short term. Well, of course, you can smoke cigarettes for a six weeks. It's not going to cause harm in the short if term. You smoke cigarettes, one, if you smoke cigarettes say one thing for here. six weeks, yeah, I'll finish. Uh, you're, you're making a lot of statements that I disagree with. That, yeah. that, the, um, that any way a person loses weight, fat on the body is so pro-inflammatory and dangerous. And fat cells skew, spew out lipokines and cytokines and reactive oxygen species and it makes you insulin resistance and activate aromatase. So any way a person loses weight is going to show some short-term benefits on, on data points. That's, Just exactly, that's exactly why vegan diets work in your studies, because they're losing weight and they're calorie restricted. And we'll talk okay. about it, but go ahead. That's why your vegan so any diets method work. a person loses weight. I agree there was with a recent you. Study showing keto there's a study done recently on carbohydrate restriction and showing that to see if these keto diets people are losing to lose weight are safe long term. So they followed people with keto diets long term and they showed that they had a such a, a dramatic increase of premature mortality both cardiovascular and cancer mortality publishing a warning saying that people following keto-based diets to lose weight may see short-term improvements in cardiovascular markers because of loss of body fat and decreased insulin resistance, but long-term, these are dangerous. And if you can achieve um, weight loss and fat reduction in safer manners, that's why no legitimate medical authority or medical can support or the American College of Lifestyle Medicine or any, any um, nutritional organization could never support these radical type diets that 
you're recommending because there's proven dangers long-term. You can't say every long-term study is you can't agree with because then you're just saying, well, there's no way you can disprove you because every time you do a long-term study showing it's dangerous, that study is wrong. Only the short-term study is showing weight loss. Not and some bad. Okay. You are saying that. You're saying no, that's the not what I'm saying at all. studies no, that's not what I'm show the long-term no. dangers are all disavowed. I'm only going to accept this little short-term benefits from doing this. And because you can't, because all the long-term data is bad, and I'm going to just ignore the thousands of studies that show this is dangerous. And I can give you a few of those studies to look at right now that show differing amounts of animal protein in the diet, showing one study showed a fourfold. Please, can you, at some point, I would like to respond to all okay. of these things well, that you're here's saying. A study so that you need to pause six, at some point. I need to respond I'll to pause you. pause in, in one minute. Okay, here's a study that followed 6,000 people for 15 years. 6,000 people, they picked out 6,000 people, they followed them for 15 years, and they tracked how much animal products, how much animal protein they ate. So this and is, again, this that, is an observation epidemiology study. They found these people who, who they, they followed these 16, between the ages of 50 and 65, they followed them for 15 years, and those people eating more than in the highest tertiary of animal protein compared to the lowest tertiary had fourfold increased risk of cancer death over that 15-year period compared to people eating lower amounts of animal products, which were eating about 10% of animal protein or 5% of calories from animal protein compared to those in the high protein group eating about 20% of calories from animal protein or 30% of calories from animal product. So we're seeing as you go from 10 to 30% in animal product intake, cancer deaths went up fourfold, but you have people like, like um, you know, some of the paleo people, you know, you're what you're advocating and, and um, keto people that are advocating a diet with much higher amounts of animal products. Absolutely, because so, they're, yeah. they're where we get our nutrients from. But I'll let you finish, and then I need to respond so to the, all of your talking. So the, chance, the chances of you increasing cancer <clears throat> deaths, and we know that a high IGF-1 that result is increased with breast and prostate cancer. So we know all the data, we know all the findings suggest that what you're advocating is inherently is, is significantly dangerous. You're you're gambling the lives of your followers and saying, "Well, don't believe anybody except me." All those people's studies are wrong, and on my arguments, you know, and you're the one cherry picking here because you're not looking at the vast. All I'm the looking data at all the data. Have. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking you're at, not all looking the data. at all the data. You're just ignoring it all. No, I'm telling it's you why it's bad. confounded. It's, yeah. just, it's just all garbage. It's just all trash because it's long term. Can I can I respond to all those things you said, Joel? Please. Okay, so <clears throat> you, you talked about a lot, so I'm gonna need a lot of time to respond to everything you just said. So <clears throat> the first thing I would challenge you is, show me a single interventional study, the only type of study that we should really be looking at, because the study that you just mentioned was observational epidemiology, again, confounded by healthy user bias. You cannot rely on these studies, right? Show me a single study in which beans or nuts were removed and animal proteins were included that shows worse outcomes. If you can show me a single interventional study like that, that's not observational epidemiology, then I will post it on my social media and say that I was wrong. That study doesn't exist, Joel. But if you claim that study exists and I am right, you need to make a public apology and say that you were wrong because that study doesn't exist. Moving on. You made I'm statements. I'm not saying that particular uh, study said was wrong. <clears throat> I'm not saying that, that, that particular with beans and nuts are substituted for meat short term. I don't know if I have that study. You, you insinuated earlier. People can go I back to the podcast. I have studies that showing meat shows damage short term, but I didn't say substituting beans and nuts. To, I didn't say that particular Inter study. You have interventional studies that show that meat shows damage short term. That doesn't yeah. exist. 
<laughs> okay, so I will wait for those studies. You can't provide them right now on That's the podcast. Soft endpoints. Soft endpoints. We'll see. I'll wait for your studies. You can't provide them for me right now. In your in your monologue, you also said we know, quote unquote, that diets high in saturated fat and animal foods promote atherosclerosis. Completely, completely false. We'll have to do a whole separate podcast on why that's completely false. I've done six podcasts on my podcast, and there are so many studies I could go into showing that there is really no solid data showing that saturated fat or any animal products contribute to atherosclerosis. That is false, and I will push back against that statement that you suggested as a truism. You then went on to suggest that saturated fat was harmful for humans. Completely false. This has not been shown definitively, and there are many, many observational epidemiology studies <clears throat> meta-analyses, and even interventional studies now, like the one I showed in animal models, and even in humans, showing that saturated fat is beneficial. There are so many benefits to saturated fat. Why would something that we make in the human body be bad for us? Moving on. You mentioned phytochemicals. We can get into this, but we're going to run out of time, which is why I wanted to do this podcast longer. I debate soundly that these phytochemicals are indispensable for humans. And furthermore, even if we accepted that phytochemicals had perhaps some esoteric benefit. It's now been shown that in meat that is grass-fed, there are a few of these phytochemicals around. So it's, I just don't think the evidence that we need to get plants to even have these phytochemicals in our diet is there. This is very clear that there are phytonutrients that accumulate in meat and liver. They're higher in grass-fed meat and milk. That's a whole different rabbit hole that we have to go down. You cannot rely on polyphenols to save you because animals will eat them and they may end up in foods. And there are many of these phytochemicals, so-and-so, that are clearly, clearly plant defense molecules with negative effects in humans. You stated there is inflammation in the long term. I would challenge you again, and this is a very serious challenge because you are making statements in this podcast that I do not believe you can corroborate. And I really would request that you apologize for publicly when you cannot corroborate them, that long-term consumption of meat leads to inflammation. There is not a single interventional study to show that, Joel. That is false. Furthermore, moving on, <clears throat> you mentioned a, quote, keto study. And if you can show me the study, then we can clarify this. I believe you're referring to a study that was observational epidemiology that looked at, quote, low-carb diets not yep. ketogenic diets. So that was a very significant oversight on your part. Low carbohydrate diets are defined as less than 30 or 40% of the calories in your diet from carbohydrates. These are not ketogenic diets. There's a very big difference and you cannot conflate the two. Again, this is observational epidemiology. And I am not saying <clears throat> that we should throw out all this data. I am saying we should look at it in its entirety and with a large amount of caution because of the persistent insidious nature of healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias. And that was why I showed the Asian studies. If you look in Asia, because the prevailing narrative has been that meat is associated with affluence for their whole lives, you will not see the same sort of unhealthy user bias come into play, which is again, why we must advocate and highlight the actual interventional studies with meat, which do not show harm. And furthermore, if we think about this, Joel, evolutionarily, why would something, why would foods <clears throat> like meat and organs that have been at the center of the human diet for our entire evolution be bad for us? And furthermore, allow me to finish. You talked for a long time. Furthermore, where are you going to get all of the nutrients uniquely found in animal foods like meat 
if you are shunning these foods that are supposedly so bad for us. So first of all, we have a complete evolutionary inconsistency. You are a human, your ancestors ate Michel. That is incontrovertible. Anthropologists, I just went to visit the Hadza tribe in Africa, hunter gatherers that are uniquely healthy. They think about hunting 24 hours a day. They dream about hunting. All they want to do is eat animal meat. And yet you would say it is killing them, yet we do not observe chronic disease or cancer or any of these findings in a non-Westernized population. Furthermore, moving on, we must be very clear. And you are saying that I am dangerous in my prescriptions for people. Well, respectfully, I would reflect that back to you and ask you to consider how dangerous your recommendations might be for your followers when they are not getting adequate nutrients. Because we know very clearly that there are many nutrients found only in animal foods because these foods have been at the center of our evolution for our entirety. I am talking about creatine, carnitine, choline, carnosine, taurine, anserine, vitamin K2, vitamin B12, peptides uniquely found in this. And so you must answer all of these criticisms. Where are you getting these nutrients from if you shun meat? Why would a food that is so rich in these unique nutrients that allow us to be smarter? When I was on Joe Rogan, I talked about a creatine study in which vegans and vegetarians are supplemented with creatine and they get smarter, Joel. They do better because you are deficient in creatine. And there are so many studies, we can go into some of them, but we can look at these. Again, this is epidemiology, I will say it clearly, but there are so many studies just like this that look at worse health outcomes in vegetarians versus omnivores in terms of fractures and bones. This is just one nuance, just one aspect of the massive amount of nutrient deficiency that develops when we shun meat and organs, which remain, which should remain at the center of any healthy human diet. Yet another study, partial replacement of animal proteins with plant proteins for 12 weeks accelerates bone loss turnover among healthy adults, a randomized clinical trial. This is an interventional trial in which animal foods were removed and plant proteins were increased for 12 weeks. And there were increased markers of bone resorption and formation among healthy adults, possibly indicating a risk for bone health. This is possibly due to lower vitamin D and calcium intakes. And I would say it's also probably due to decreased proteins, peptides specifically like bovine active and A, other animal-based nutrients that don't occur in plant foods. There is so much here, Joel. And the last one I will show, <clears throat> and then I'll let you answer all of this and we can move on, is that even in, even in vegetarians, lifelong vegetarians who display paradigms in their conscious mind and aversion to meat at high levels, they still show event-related potentials at lower, or I should say more basic brain levels that are preserving the salience of meat. So basically this study, which is fascinating, looked at vegetarians and omnivores, and it says that Joel, if we put an ERP on your head, if we put essentially the leads for an EEG and looked at your brain activity, and we put some on my brain, and we looked at a screen and we saw meat. When you see meat, you are going to have a conscious aversion. And when I see meat, I am going to have a conscious uh, draw toward that meat because I like it. But that in vegetarians, though aversion towards non-vegetarian food prevails at the subjective level like you may have, and is consistent with personal beliefs, at the neural level, the intrinsic motivational salience of this type of food is preserved, Joel. This means that in your deeper brain, yours, 
Joel Furman's Deeper Brain, if they put EEG leads on your brain, your brain would still respond positively to meat. And I think this is a very strong argument for the fact that we evolved eating meat and it remains at the center of our nutritional paradigm for healthy humans. And so with all of this taken together, the evolutionary past of humans, the fact that we evolved eating meat, that the unique nutrients in meat made us human. And this is really difficult to debate. You can look at studies like this one, looking at Paranthropus and other species that there's a diversion between Paranthropus robustus and Homo habilis and Homo erectus. Paranthropus was a plant eater. He went extinct. Australopithecus evolved into Homo habilis, who was eating more meat. This is evidence for this in bone and teeth. And so it's very clear from the evolutionary evidence that humans evolved eating meat, from the nutritional evidence that meat provides so many unique nutrients and that we when we decrease meat, we have worse outcomes. I can show so many studies and believe me, Joel, I have them at my fingertips to show you right now. I can show you so many studies showing the vegetarian diets lead to myriad nutritional deficiencies. You can look at your brain response to meat. How is it possible? Why? It doesn't make any sense that all of these epidemiology studies would show a true finding. And you can look at the Asian epidemiology studies and the interventional studies with red meat, which show it to be not inflammatory and improve outcomes. All of it adds up in my mind to the fact that red meat and organs and fat are at the center of our diet. And we have to look, take a critical eye toward the epidemiology. I'm not ignoring it. I'm saying, whoa, this doesn't add up. This doesn't pass the sniff test. This is crazy. Why would it be bad for us? And then you get into the realm of healthy user bias, unhealthy user bias, and things start to make more sense. I'm not denying it, but what I'm saying is that in the West, the prevailing narrative is strong. I know you don't go to McDonald's and I don't go to McDonald's, but I would ask the listener, I'm almost yeah. done. I'm finishing in the next 30 seconds. Please don't interrupt me. You got to speak for a very long time, Joel. I let don't you speak me. for over oh. 10 minutes. In the United States, when you go to McDonald's, who orders a Big Mac with no bun, no special sauce, no lettuce, no tomato, no one. People are eating red meat with other junk food and observational epidemiology will forever be confounded by the inability to separate those two. When you go to a barbecue, and I don't know if you go to barbecues where people eat meat, but when you go to a barbecue and there are people eating meat, who eats a steak with no mayonnaise, with processed soybean oil? Who eats a steak with no brownie or Coca-Cola or processed sugar? This is not the behavior of Americans. And observational epidemiology cannot distinguish between any of these things. And it is why that argument to say, let's rely on the entirety, the majority of the data is false. It's building a house on sand. You're building a house literally on a landfill full of garbage studies that are based on inconsistencies and it's leading to problems in your followers. And so, as I said, I would respectfully reflect back to you the same challenge. How convinced are you that you are not leading people to ill health, to increase rates of bone fractures, to increase fragility, to decrease mental processing, to decrease libido, to decrease muscle mass, to decrease longevity, to decrease intelligence and processing by asking them to shun meat? Because if you are going to challenge me with that, that must be reflected back to you as well. I, I agree with that point of view, by the way. And I'm, and I'm critical of a lot of vegan diets out there. And I also, you know, my nutritarian diet attempts to go for, um, it teaches comprehensive nutrient adequacy and making sure all the nutrients human needs, humans need are present in their diet. But and you don't can't get all those nutrients from plants. Hold it, hold it. Let me, let me, let me say something. Um, right. You can't get all those nutrients from plants. I'm disagreeing with that. Now, by the way, 
in all the blue zones, which are identified by scientists as having the longest lived populations of the world alive. You can mention an African tribe that may be not that sick, but their, their overall lifespan is shortened by the fact they're not exposed to enough plant material. Not true. At, There's no evidence for that. Hold it, hold it, hold it. You, you, you can't just, make that statement. You wouldn't let me interrupt you for like 10, 15 minutes. I'm let just me saying just that's speak. a false statement. Let me just speak for two or three minutes. Then, yes, please. Okay, because I have a few, just a few. I can't remember everything you said. Let me just a few of those points. Number one, it's not true what you said about not controlling for refined carbohydrates, bread, the buns, other things. These epidemiologic studies are not done in West, all in Western countries, Western dieters. I just gave you the example on the Seventh-day Adventist study on healthy um, vegans versus not, versus people in the same diet with more or less only modifying the amount of meat they're eating, otherwise having the amount of um, other or plant foods being fixed and not eating junk food. There are multiple long-term studies where they control for those factors with oil consumption and processed grain consumption and looking at all the different foods that people are eating in those studies, also showing the same data. So what you're misleading, you're giving misleading information. It's not true that all those studies are confounded. You have very brilliant scientists showing that as you raise processed grains and high glycemic carbohydrates you cause damage. And as you raise animal products and you reduce consumption of beans and nuts and whole vegetables, you also cause, you also cause damage. And that vegetables clearly are the foods. And I have this acronym GBOMS, which stands for greens and beans and onions and mushrooms and berries and seeds that are the, mo the foods with the most consistent and powerful association with reduced risk of all types of cancers. Now, nobody's saying here, and I also, by, by the way, in my blog at my website, drfurman.com, on my blog, I commented on that vegan study with increased risk of fracture. And I went into detail about the study to show that how these English vegetarians and vegans were eating such a junk food diet, and most of their calories came from processed carbohydrates, and their diet was, and, their, and I analyzed the calcium in their diet, it was inadequate. I analyzed the protein in their diet, which was inadequate. And I showed that, and I showed compared to the nutritarian diet that I recommend with obviously much higher in calcium and protein. So I'm also not defending the fact that a vegan diet could be deficient in certain, is deficient in B12, omega-3, zinc, K2, and for some people with higher amino acids. So, and all these things have to be considered when you're advocating the right diet for each individual person. But that doesn't change the fact that as you move a diet, with a low amount of animal products to a diet with excessively higher amounts, approaching what we do in America and approaching what you're recommending to very, very high levels, you get, you're putting people into a severe danger zone, zone and your logic is not even, it's not even, doesn't even make sense because a little bit of animal products adds some important nutrients to your diet and that makes it okay to not eat, to, to, to disavow eating a diet high in vegetables, beans, nuts, and onions. You, you don't have to eat those foods. Instead, you can eat a lot of animal products because a little bit have some beneficial nutritive effects that you don't get from a completely vegan diet. It makes it now good, safe, or better to eat a diet of all animal products and not eat enough vegetables and beans and nuts. But, and I'm saying is we have a limited dietary portfolio. We only have a certain amount of calories you eat each day. And as your dietary plate is taken up by larger amounts of animal products, you're accordingly lowering your amount of calories from these very protective foods, reducing your risk of cancer. And that's what these studies show. They show as you can tweak, as you put animal products down to lower levels, and when you go down all the way to a vegan diet, yes, then you have to substitute EPA, D, um, B12, 
you know, K2, extra zinc is beneficial to your immune system because zinc isn't absorbed as well from plant foods. There's a things you have to you there's things you should do that you would get better from meat. And you can accommodate that or use a small amount of animal product. But that's not the argument here. The argument that I'm making on this podcast, on this interview, is that the diet style that you and other people are advocating a high amount of meat that are recommending that is too dangerous to consider because the data is overwhelming. And by you disavowing that data, you're doing yourself a disservice and putting yourself at too high a risk and your followers at too high a risk. And, um, you know, the, and the idea that, that all these, these nutrients that are so important in meat, and I'm saying, well, there's, there's thousands of nutrients, antioxidants and phytochemicals that you might get in tiny amounts and a couple of them here and there, but, but it's the huge variety of phytochemicals that has phytochemical synergy. And I can show you studies that adding flax seeds reduces risk of, here's an interventional study on people with breast cancer followed for 10 years, showing a 71% decreased risk of death from breast cancer over that 10 year period. That's not people, a, you have to be very careful when you're talking about, these are relative risk reductions. These are not absolute risk okay, reductions, Joel. Okay, like so we're still talking about, we can talk about, that's a difference, um, um, we're absolute or relative. I understand what you're saying. You're inflating the numbers. I'm just giving the numbers it says in the, in the results of the but study. But you're, not, you're okay. not reporting them accurately, so I'm just correcting you. I'm reporting exactly what the study states in the literature that's published in this, and has, these are peer-reviewed data with scientists reviewing the data, checking their accuracy, published in medical literature. So, but, and, and you're saying, well, that data, but in any case, I'm showing, I'm showing you that the data, there's so much data and there's so much careful data. And I, I think that you're making some major errors by disavowing all the data you don't like. And I'm not disagreeing with you on other aspects and saying that there are vegans eating unhealthfully and there are certain nutrients that vegans have to be concerned with. And that primates, and we're a primate, and, we're, and as a primate- We're a hominid, we're a hominid. We're not, a, we're different. We're a different species than a primate. Let's be very clear I know, about that. I, that's not, okay, that's a semantical disagreement. I we're don't a hominid. Really well, our guts look completely different. I mean, I want to let you finish. No, they don't. Guts, our guts oh, are not yes. like They're completely different than primates, Joel. Only, Okay. Our guts are completely the, different. The my end of my sentence there was saying that we're dependent on a large amount of plant matter for great for, for good health in the long term. We're our, because we of our genetic that. history, <laughs> we're dependent on that. And when we look at populations like the Maasai or like the Eskimos or like the ones that you're bringing up, when we look at them, they all who have higher degrees of animal products and limited exposure to plant foods, they all have dramatically shortened lifespans. Show me, show me that lifespan, data. Show me the data. Pause. Show me that data. Show me that data because that their lifespan of hunter gatherers is confounded by higher rates of infant mortality. This is called squaring of the morbidity curve. It is something I have talked about ad nauseum. I interviewed James Clement. We talked about this. If you look at hunter gatherer populations, the Inuit, the Eskimo, the Maasai, the, uh, the hunter, the Hadza that I just spent time with, their health span is much greater than ours as Western societies. And if you account for the higher rates of infant mortality that occur in the wild, they live just as long as us. It is an absolute inconsistency. You are completely wrong. Well, just as long as us, isn't, that's, like, that's not very good. Just as long, I'm saying- They have a health span, but they live, I mean, 70, to, 70 to 80 years, their life expectancy is 70 to 80 years. But and our life expectancy of okay, a healthy so, population should be at least 90 to 100 years. Well, not there's- <laughs> Look, like there, there's no one living that long it's a on the standard American diet, the poor diet, the okay. poor life. Allow the me to finish my thought. Americans die of cardiovascular deaths. 
Okay. It's not, it's not productive when we just do this. So one of us has to do a thought and the other one does. I jumped in, but I just let me finish my thought. Then I'll let you finish and then I'll respond to the things you said. And then I'll let you go skiing. So you were stating that hunter gatherers have short lifespans. That's false. You cannot show me that data. And if you show me that data, I will publicly say that I was wrong, but that is not true. That is not true. There is squaring of the morbidity curve. These Hadza, some of them live to 80, 90 years old, but their life expectancy is just as good as ours in the West. And their health span is much better. And like I said, Joel, they eat meat every time they can get it. They are the most, they are the most vital people I've ever met. They are super healthy. They don't have chronic disease. So that's just an anthropologic example. But for you to say that hunter-gatherers don't have the same lifespan as us is wrong or that plant-based I'm populations. Not, I'm not using the term hunter-gatherers. I use the term Eskimos. And, and Maasai, which are hunter-gatherers. Who, who eat a lot of meat. I'm saying yeah. high meat-consuming populations. Right. I just went there to- There are hunter-gatherers just, that may eat a lot of plant food too with their meat, right? We're talking about as the people that exclude meat, they get it and they don't have enough exposure to plant food, then they get into trouble. See, that's false. I, that you, I don't believe you can corroborate that statement. I want to let you finish your thought. I want to let you finish your thought. And then I'm going to finish my thoughts because you mentioned blue zones. You mentioned the African tribes. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, controlling for variables and you mentioned uh, antioxidants. So I want to respond to all that, but I want to make sure you have a chance to finish all of your thoughts. Well, I do have to go, and I don't think really. I don't think this is becoming more productive anyway, because you're not. Because my main point, as you know, is that we have overwhelming, incontrovertible data that you can't throw out, and you just want to throw everything out. So, and I think that data is the high credence primary gold standard. So you remove the gold standard, and you present junk as being this gold standard. So we're we're at an impasse that can't be solved. Because I think the large scale studies with large numbers of people followed for, for years with carefully controls of what the variables are, I think those are the gold standard. So, and I think that, we have to use the studies that, that the long-term studies, when they corroborate the short-term studies and they corroborate each other, a large number of them corroborate each other. So you can comment now, but I think I've said enough. I, I don't think I need to counterpoint what you're going to say. I think you can counterpoint the end and we can close this conversation because the major, I think the major difference is we're not going to come across that big divide here. Yeah, but I agree. I think the conversation is valuable. So you are, you are saying now that, that we should use observational epidemiology as the gold standard. Um, and I would disagree with that 100%. That's not, mainstream medical science says no. No way. That's not the gold standard at all. If you look at the pyramid of evidence and with nutrition, I just say with nutrition, it's not a drug. With nutrition, you need time to ferret out and see what happens to people when they follow a certain way of life long term. We need time and the short term studies don't give us some hypotheses. But if you don't, with drugs, it's different. But with it may be a gold standard, a double blinded controlled trial with a drug. But with nutrition and the fact that we live a long time and you don't see the effects of what the advice is for decades later, cancer, what we do now causes cancer 20, 30 years down the road. If you don't look at what happens down the road with nutritional interventions, then you're not looking at the, then you, you're not finding, you, then you can, you're not getting the right information out of the studies. You have to look at long-term with nutrition. Joel, human evolution is the best long-term nutritional study. Human evolution, your evolution, my evolution, that is the best long-term study that's ever been done. And that is called anthropology. And what we find is that there are many cultures like the Hadza. That is why I went to Tanzania. Those studies have been done. That is called human evolution, Joel. 
We ate meat, we became human. We got bigger brains, smaller colons, more acidic stomachs, smaller rib angles, so many adaptations to eating meat, and westernized populations that shun uh, animal foods and that increase their consumption of sugars and seed oils become diseased, right? I, I agree with that. you there. I agree right? with that, right. That, that that's way. reasonable, yes. But long-term nutritional studies, the best long-term nutritional study that's ever been done is human evolution. And so these hunter-gatherer tribes like the Hadza cannot be ignored because we find them hunting meat every single day of their life, and yet they are free from chronic disease. These are 50, 60, 70-year-old people who have decades and decades of observational studies. If you're going to do these, these have been done. It's called anthropology, it's called human evolution, and I just went to Tanzania and spent time with some of the last remaining hunter-gatherers on the planet, the Hadza. We hunted every single day, we ate meat over the fire, and they were healthy and fit and free from diabetes, obesity, autoimmune disease, depression, cancer. These studies have been done, okay? And so I would debate, we cannot use, and this may be the core of the discussion, this may be the core of the problem between plant-based and animal-based ideologies. We cannot use observational epidemiology as the gold standard. That is the problem. We cannot do that. That benefits your position because you're gonna say, oh, if we use it as the gold standard, there's all of these extra studies that, that show this to be the trace. And I'm saying, you can't use something that's, that's fundamentally confounded. And you're saying these smart researchers can control these variables. They can't, they just cannot. When I was in medical school, I did a lot of work in statistics. I did a lot of work with statistical variable programs. You cannot control for these variables. Even the smartest statisticians can't control for these variables. It's been shown time and time again. They can try, but it's not perfect. And we can't use these flawed studies as the gold standard. We need interventional studies. And so that's what we're trying to do. And there are interventional studies with animal-based diets, which I can show. And there are interventional studies with vegan diets. And I would posit, as you astutely suggested in this podcast, if there is a reduction in calories, and there's weight loss, that is gonna show an improvement in outcome. And so many of the plant-based studies that show improvements are calorie restricted. So I agree, what we need are long-term interventional isocaloric studies in people with high amounts of animal foods and high amounts of plant foods to really sort this out. Because that doesn't exist as far as I can tell other than human evolution. <laughs> and that, as far as I can tell in anthropology, shows us very clearly that meat and organs are indispensable in the human diet. Now, I wanna go back because you mentioned the blue zones multiple times in this podcast, and I rail against this because I think that Dan Buettner has done us all a great disservice by cherry picking five regions of the world and actually getting it wrong in four of them about how much meat they were actually eating. So the blue zones are Ikaria, Sardinia, Okinawa, Loma Linda, and the last one is the Nicoya region of Costa Rica, which is actually where I am sitting right now, Joel. I am on the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica. Now. I have read the literature. So I've been to the Nicoya region of Costa Rica. I've been to Loma Linda, California. I wanna visit the other five, but guess what? First of all, this is T. Colin Campbell stuff. Dan Buettner missed all the other regions of the world where people have exceptional longevity because they didn't fit his hypothesis. What about Hong Kong where people live a very long time and eat tons of meat every day? What about Iceland where the majority of their diet is animal-based because they live at such a high latitude and they have a very high number of centenarians. These were left out of the blue zones, number one. Number two, if you look at Loma Linda, for instance, Loma Linda is an absolute joke of a blue zone. Now, I will respectfully say that uh, I had Stephen Gundry on the podcast yesterday. If you look at the sperm quality, the reproductive quality of people in Loma Linda, it's abysmal. And they even say it here in the study 
Food intake and diet and sperm characteristics in a blue zone, Aloma Linda study. This study showed that the vegetables-based food intake decreased sperm quality. <laughs> in particular, a reduction in sperm quality in male factor patients would be clinically significant, would require further review. Furthermore, inadequate sperm hyperactivation in vegans suggested compromised membrane calcium selective channels. So I don't understand how you can consider Loma Linda a blue zone when people there have reduced mortality. Even if we do consider Loma Linda a blue zone, there are many studies like this one which show that Mormons living in California have a similar uh, longevity advantage, but they don't shun meat. This is exactly, this is analogous to what we are talking about with observational epidemiology. What we are saying here is that the healthy lifestyle characteristics, several healthy characteristics of the Mormon lifestyle are associated with substantially reduced death rates and increased life expectancy. The Mormons in California live just as long as the folks in Loma Linda. But Dan Buettner didn't choose this as a blue zone. Oh, I wonder why, because the Mormons don't shun meat. It didn't fit his hypothesis. Moving on, we can look at multiple papers of people who have actually been to places like Okinawa or Ikaria in Greece and find that all of these places eat meat. Now, this doesn't make any sense. Why are we saying that these are plant-heavy diets? These people are also eating meat. This is, again, this is correlation being used to suggest causative inference. It's very unfortunate. The socio-demographic and lifestyle characteristics of the oldest people living in Ikaria, if you read this paper, they do not eat less meat than the general Greek population. In fact, they eat more meat. I had a woman on my show named Mary Ruddock who lives in Greece, who spent time with the people in Ikaria and ate lamb liver with them. They do not shun meat. Furthermore, we can move to Okinawa. We're just moving all over the world right now. The Okinawan diet, if you look at this paper, Nutrition for the Japanese Elderly, there's a quote in this paper that's actually in my book in which they said they did not find a single centenarian among the vegetarians in Okinawa. And imagine that. The Okinawans also eat, um, they also eat lots of meat. And so they looked at all these and they found there wasn't a single centenarian right here Unexpectedly, we did not find any vegetarians among the centenarians in Okinawa. Why are people using Okinawans to support their concept of the blue zones when there were no centenarians among the vegetarians in Okinawa? The blue zones are a farce, Joel. I'm sorry. We cannot use the blue zones. You brought it up multiple times. So I oh, wanted right. to show why it's completely false, right? To they say have that. large vegetable intake. They're no, they're, they're, they're we're showing meat. Please let me finish. On the Seventh Day Adventist study, the Mormon study too, you're not presenting all the data. They, it's that when you look at the data in depth among Seventh Day Adventists, those that ate more animal products died younger, and those that ate more plants lived the longest lived Seventh Day Adventists were those eating more plants. We're not defending the problems with a strict vegan diet here. It's not even we're, relevant in a population that doesn't not, have good fertility. And we're talking. And like I said, I compared it to Mormons. That doesn't give you sufficient exposure to plant, to a variety of plant foods are putting people at increased, at too much increased risk. This and what you're considering yeah. longevity, I'm, I'm saying we have an unprecedented his, opportunity in human history to push the envelope of human longevity. And we're not going to do it by eating only plants, that's for sure. I didn't have years. a chance to finish, Joel. I, I gave you the floor. I, I'm just saying the unprecedented longevity has to do with making sure we have all the adequate nutrients, yes. From meat. Diet, but not, but, the, but a meat heavy diet 
takes away that possibility because you're not exposing yourself to enough nutritional variety and nutritional diversity of the plant kingdom. See, we disagree. That's for a second podcast. But look at this, Joel. I mean, this is observational epidemiology. But if that's the case, then, I mean, you love these type of studies. I think there's a real, this is just an interesting thing, but I'm not going to rely on the study. But why is, there a, why is there a relationship between telomere length, which is not the perfect metric of longevity, and red meat? There's a direct correlation. An unexpected correlation of telomere length with the frequency of consumption of red meats indicates the need for further in-depth research. And I think this is so fascinating. Again, this is not a perfect study. It's observational, but you can look at the TS ratio for the telomeres, which gives you a sense of the length of them via real-time PCR. And there's an association here. So I just don't think there's enough evidence to support your statements. I appreciate where you're coming from. I believe your intentions are good. And I think that you're not able to support your statements very well. And I'm showing repeatedly that these blue zones are false. There has to be a degree of caution. Well, I think we can leave with saying that what I'm suggesting for you is that you have some degree of caution that with all the data out there, you have to at least mitigate this idea of the diet being so high in meat as potentially being risky. Well, let's talk about that on the second podcast, because in this podcast, we did not review any data that I think supports the notion that excess meat is harmful to humans. And I talked about data that if any long-term study doesn't, isn't that valid. And only long-term studies show the damage when you do it long-term. Human evolution, Joel. Human evolution. Yeah, so we must find something else. We have to keep finding something else because I'm saying that it's false. And I'm saying there are so many nutrient deficiencies. You even admitted it yourself. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. There are people that that I've I've taken care of. um, I'm careful to suggest, I'm saying that there, that's right. There are vegans that can become demented due to lack of D, they don't make enough EPA and DHA in their brain. And ah, some that, uh, that I, and because so that these has compounds to, are not found in vegan foods. Well, can cause problems with the, so I'm, I'm not saying a vegan diet that were biologically adapted to that to human history. When we adopt a diet to that level of plant food, we have to make sure that we're supplementing or using some foods that are supplying those nutrients. <laughs> like animal foods. What's That's that? where we get the nutrients from. And so your well, task- that, Then we're saying as you go higher amounts of animal products, then you start to develop problems and so- that's where you- that, and that's where we disagree, because I'm saying that's all observational evidence. Human history would suggest the opposite. The Hadza eat meat as much as they can. They don't have chronic disease. I don't have chronic disease. The person living in their 90s. I don't have, they have tons of people living in their 90s. Tons of people, they're going to, okay. So it's a bell-shaped curve, and the center of the bell is going to be relatively low. The center of the bell. We have people who live in junk food and live in their 90s and near 100 now, today in America. But Which is the why bell, longevity the is studies are very complex. Yes, it's and complicated and stuff. Bad diet here for the center of the bell to be 78 to 80 is terrible. A 78, 80-year-old lifespan with poor healthy life expectancy is not worth striving to emulate. Okay, the bell- so, yeah, I agree. I think we should live longer. And these people live in the wild. They get snake bites. They fall out of trees, you know? They're hunter-gatherer populations. But let's just close with this. I mean, we've, I think we've discussed a good amount. We probably need to do a part two if you're willing to. I want to talk more about phytonutrients, polyphenols. I'd love to have you back on. There's a lot more to discuss. The last thing I'm going to ask you is, are you willing to get your, are you willing to share your blood work? Are you willing to share your continuous glucose monitor readings? And are you willing to share your visceral fat? Because earlier in the podcast, you intimated, please let me finish. In the, earlier in the podcast, you intimated that the vegan and vegetarian diets reverse heart disease. 
But I've spoken with Sean O'Mara and he's seen many vegans that have, I've seen people in my clinic as a PA in cardiology that were vegans and vegetarians that had heart attacks. So we, the quality well, of the diet is important. All vegan diets are going to do that. Right. So I'm curious about well, yours. I'm willing to share my data on the next podcast, my visceral fat. I'd like, I'm willing to share my bone density. I'm willing to share my lean muscle mass. Of course, I'm a younger man than you, but I would like to see your visceral adipose tissue. I would like to see your bone density because I'm worried about your bone density. And I would like to see your muscle mass. And like, I think we should do another podcast. What do you think at a 67 year old, how many 67 year olds do you know that have 10% body fat like I do, right? It's great. Which is, yeah. And, and my, obviously my numbers are, are impeccable, but that, but that's almost not even relevant. What's your visceral fat? Probably, probably almost an undetectable four or five, something super low, you know. But probably you haven't not. measured it. I've done it. I've done a body. Yeah, I've measured it, but I don't. I haven't looked at it in the last couple of years or so. I, I don't even remember what the number is, but it's so low. It's so ridiculously low. I'd be curious to see it. I'd be curious to see it, and maybe we could discuss your diet in more detail in the next podcast. But you know, I'll just leave it with this, Joel. I feel like, despite the fact that we disagreed on a lot, I think that the conversation was generally respectful. Uh, I apologize if I interrupted you. I appreciate you letting me elaborate on my points. I hope you got to elaborate on your points. I think that it's good that we were able to show the counterpoints. And I think that more conversation needs to happen. I'm really grateful that you came on. Oh, sounds good. All right. Appreciate it. Enjoy. All right, Have a good day skiing. Thank you. Good luck. Okay. You. See you, Joel. Bye-bye. All right, guys. There you have it. Vegan debate with Joel Furman. Um, I think it was good. I, it was interesting. As you can tell, um, he is very focused on epidemiology, as I suspected. And we didn't even get into polyphenols. We didn't get into fiber. We didn't get into cancer. There are so many pieces to this uh, that are more detailed that we need to dig into. But interesting conversation. Um, I hope it was helpful. I want to do a lot more of these debates with plant-based advocates. I think that it's important and it moves the conversation forward. I hope that you will share this podcast widely with anyone you know who. Um, who is interested in plant-based versus vegan versus animal-based diets. If you have people in your life who need more nutrition, who need to thrive, who you can help reclaim their ancestral birthright to radical health, please forward them this podcast. Let them take a look and listen. I'll just say that I hope I represented you guys and, and myself well. Um, if I jumped in too much, I apologize. I'll be better on the next one. But I, there, it's so hard. And I tried to give Joel the floor as much as I could. We were jumping both and jumping in a little bit. But I think that debates with structure work really well. And I hope that we can do more of these and people can just present two or three points and the other person can answer those two or three points uh, as clearly as possible. I will await the studies that Joel has promised me. I will show you guys on social media if he's able to provide any of the ones that he suggested that he could. I don't think he will because they don't exist, um, but we'll see. I could be proven wrong and I will learn and I will share that with you all. So. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. If you like this podcast, it's how we spread the message. I think both Joel and I want to help humans be healthier. So I have to respect him for that. I don't think vegans are the enemy. I think we're all looking for the same thing. But I do think that this type of discussion is super valuable for us as humans and moves the needle forward. And if you want to share it, leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how I move the needle. If you need more nose nutrition, check us out at hardensoil.co. As you guys heard in this podcast, there are so many unique nutrients found in animal foods. Even Joel admits that, right? And they're found in organs. Get more organs in your diet, whether they're desiccated or fresh, and we'll help you out at Hard and Soil. All right, guys, that's it for me this week. 
I'm going surfing, I'm getting in the sun, I'm gonna go eat some steak and liver, I'm loving life in Costa Rica, I'm gonna go do a little research on the Nicoya Peninsula and the Blue Zones, but you guys stay radical, I love you all.